0: You know, I think the most, one of the most helpful ways to develop that judgment is from talking to people who've been in the industry for a long time. Um, so, you know, I, reading about the markets and following trends is very helpful, but ultimately you can learn so much by talking to people who've actually invested through cycles.
1: Welcome to the Breaking Into Finance podcast. Let's dive in. Hey everybody, thrilled to have Kristen Meredith on the show today. And Kristen, there are a couple of really interesting things I think about your background, um, but just just for everybody. So we we've, we've crossed paths twice, uh, both times in school. So we we both went to Middlebury together, uh, a couple years apart, but we knew each other like a little bit there. I think we met like once or twice, and then again during the MBA program at Wharton. And you uh, have a long career in private equity and growth equity and kind of investing broadly. And I think where I want to start is, you know, you did something that I think a lot of people want to do but don't do, which is skipping banking and somehow (laughs) investing. Uh, So so maybe I'd love to start there, just um, whether it's, you know, the internship and the full-time one a little bit about what that application process was like. And now that you've gone through it and having skipped banking, how do we feel about about that? are we are we happy we did it? Um, pros and cons?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, my belief is that there are a number of effective paths into a career in investing. Investment banking is certainly one of them. Um, And, you know, I I know a lot of people who've taken that path and I think it provides great training in terms of technical skills, financial modeling. And there certainly is a very clear path into private equity if if that's what you're looking to do. Um, From my perspective, so I joined BlackRock initially as a summer intern after my junior year of college. And I was coming from very much a liberal arts background. I had studied economics and psychology, so I didn't personally have formal financial training. Uh, And what I loved about this opportunity was that I was joining a team at BlackRock that invested quite broadly within private equity. Um, So we were investing into directly into companies as a minority investor, as well as into funds, so investing into private equity funds and venture capital funds. So this really excited me um, as a way of, you know, getting such a broad view of the private equity and venture capital landscape, Um, you know, really getting to learn about lots of types of companies um, and get exposure also to how top funds, both private equity funds, venture capital funds were approaching the industry. Um, and lastly, one thing I really liked about that position was that I was encouraged very early on to, you know, develop my own investment views and actually, you know, provide my own opinions on opportunities, um, which I don't think is always the case in, you know, junior
1: analyst roles. Can you share a little bit about how that maybe internship application process, um, if it was different or your or unique at all in terms of types of you know, interview questions you'd get and what type of prep you had to do?
0: Yep. So I guess one point around that is, you know, if as someone coming from a liberal arts background, there was definitely focus on, you know, whether I had the technical skills to enter a role alongside people coming from, you know, business undergraduate programs, right? Um, So that was definitely something I had to prepare for, you know, on my own outside of class. Um, And that I certainly would encourage anyone, you know, if you're not in a business program um, to develop those skills on the side and have a very thoughtful rationale for, you know, why you're equipped to, to, you know, to take on a role and also, you know, learn quickly on the job. Um, in, In terms of the application process. Um, so my process was a bit unique since I was studying abroad for my full junior year. Um, so you know, I applied through the Middlebury website um, to opportunities through through my personal network. Um, but definitely, you know, encourage anyone if you know if you're not at a school that has a very structured on campus recruiting program, you know, to the extent that you can reach out to people on various teams that are interested in. Um, you know really try to make those personal connections. I, I think that can be very
1: effective as well. Great. And just because you you alluded to the study abroad, this this gets to I think like one of the coolest things you've you've done, which is you you were at BlackRock for three years, and at the end of those three years, you decided to switch firms and not only switch firms but also switch countries. So you <laughs> made this pretty cool decision to move to Paris after three years and to go work at Eurasio. Um, And I'd love to hear, first off, I don't know, investing in Paris sounds pretty cool. So what are are maybe some fun highlights about what that experience was like for you um, and how was that transition?
0: Sure. Uh, So, you know, I I ended up in Paris um, a bit unexpectedly. I was was recruited by a headhunter in Paris For a fund at Eurasio that um, essentially what they were doing and continue to do is invest in platform companies in Paris, generally, you know, lower middle market companies was the focus of the team I joined. Um, And then once they acquired those companies, they were then making multiple add on acquisitions, um, acquiring companies both throughout Europe and in the US. Um, So their goal in recruiting someone international was to have someone who had, you know, experience not just investing in France, but actually had investing experience, you know, in the U.S. or elsewhere in Europe. Um, So, yeah, that was, you know, an exciting opportunity for me. Um, I got great exposure at, you know, pretty early on in my career um, to, you know, join company boards, get to work very closely with um, French and other European management teams. Um, you know, got some opportunities to travel both in Europe and the U.S., um, you know, meeting with these companies and helping them acquire new add-ons and work through other phases of their growth. Um, so, yeah, overall, a terrific experience.
1: And I, you've touched on this a couple of times, but just the the importance of having that, you know, investment judgment and building investment judgment for someone who you know maybe they they haven't even started working full time yet maybe they're you know 19 20 21 years old what are some things that they can be doing now to start building some of that investment judgment and what are some things that you'd look for if you were evaluating someone like that for for whether that's a muscle that they've they've been stretching at all
0: definitely you know i think the most one of the most helpful ways to develop that judgment is from talking to people who've been in the industry for a long time. Um, so, you know, I reading about the markets and following trends is very helpful, but ultimately you can learn so much by talking to people who've actually invested through cycles and, you know, they can identify trends and, uh, you know, listening to people who have that experience and also talking to, you know, management teams at companies I think you can learn a ton so you know to the extent that you can you know reach out to people who you know have worked in areas that you're interested in um actually connect with companies in you know various sectors I I think that's that's one way to learn a ton
1: awesome and did you have any prior connection to to France? I know you mentioned studying abroad, but you know, how how important was that in your interview process?
0: I did I did. Um so I studied abroad in Bordeaux um during my junior year of college. Um and that was that was actually how I ended up um getting contacted by this headhunter was that they had seen that on my LinkedIn. Um, So certainly encourage anyone to, you know, include those types of experiences on your LinkedIn uh, when you're in college. Uh, And in terms of the process, that definitely was important. Um, I think, you know, every experience is unique. But in terms of the company I joined, the team was very much majority French, um, and they were looking for someone who could, you know, integrate into the team, um, specifically, you know, speaking French with colleagues and with management teams. Um, So that was quite important to them. Um, And then also, you know, it was important to them that I have some sort of connection to France and a desire to really, you know, move there, integrate into the culture um, and build some roots there.
1: In your experience, and I know you, you know, your your end is one, but from what you've heard from others, is that generally true in non English speaking European countries? Like, if you wanted to do Spanish private equity, it would help to learn Spanish. If you're doing German private equity, uh, help to know German, etc.
0: I would say that it is often true. Um, there are more international teams. I know people who've you know worked on private equity teams in. France and spoken English at work, Um, I I think a good way to tell is if you look at the composition of the investment team you would be joining, you know, if that team is 99% French or Spanish, it's a pretty fair assumption that what is happening internally within that team is occurring in French or Spanish, right? Um, If that team is 50% international, then I think it's at a point where they probably are speaking a lot more English internally. Um, And then in terms of, you know, external, you know, facing activities with management teams, um, board meetings, generally, or oftentimes, it is the preference of those people you're meeting with to speak their native language. Um, So I think that's just another thing to consider is that, you know, you might be on a team where... Everyone speaks English, um, but you want to at least be comfortable or understand um, these types of meetings that you'd be taking.
1: And language barrier aside, are there any strategic or otherwise kind of big differences between U.S. versus European private equity that you noticed?
0: market it's much bigger um so it, you know it is a different experience i would say if you know if there is a, a deal in french private equity about to happen I, I think everyone is just in the know and everyone is talking to each other um, so in a way it is like a smaller world than being in that industry in new york or san francisco i think um, overall the investment processes are quite similar i would say um, but yeah, there is that because it is quite a small industry, I think, you know, relationships and network are even that much more important um, because, you know, really, everybody does know everybody, it seems.
1: Yeah. And then the, the last question, because I, I do get asked this from my listeners, just on on compensation, broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, in your experience, is it similar order of magnitude U.S. versus Europe private equity compensation, or are there any big differences there?
0: Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I would say that you know, generally speaking, in the U.S., cash compensation will be higher than Europe, um, at least for junior roles. I you know, I can't speak to to every role. Um, I I think it personally that it is worth keeping an open mind, though, you know, I wouldn't turn down an opportunity in Europe just because you see that, you know, the salary is lower. Right. Um, I think, you know, it's important to consider all elements of compensation. Um, From what I've seen, a lot of European funds, they will hire people who stay for a much longer time. So, you know, instead of hiring a junior person who they expect to leave after two years, they might be hiring someone, but really expect them to build a career there. So that might mean that they're willing to invest in you in other ways. You know, they might offer carried interest, which would essentially allow you to benefit from the upside of your funds performance, um, earlier on than some American funds that wouldn't offer that. Um, so that can be a big difference as well. Uh, and then you know, cost of living also is worth is worth taking into account. And I think you know you may be able to live somewhere that's lower cost of living than New York or San Francisco.
1: Yes, yes. Um, and and so that brings us into the present, where you are now a VP at Prism Capital, and you I know you previously worked with Prism's founders at BlackRock, but maybe I'd love to hear a little bit about what attracted you to. To Prisms and a little bit about what your day to day looks like now.
0: Definitely. Um, so, what one of the things that really attracted me to Prisms model is that it's very much a partnership model. We are, we're we're long term investors, so we're investing in companies that we've identified as disruptive and leaders in their categories, and we're really partnering with them over the long term to facilitate their growth and help them with truly whatever we can do um, to to help optimize um, that growth path. So I really love that partnership model. Um, And as you mentioned, I had worked with several members of the team previously um, and had a great relationship with them. team was also a a big factor for me. Uh, In terms of, you know, the day to day, I think it's you know there are similarities to what you would see in private equity and there are some differences. Um, I spend you know a good portion of my time evaluating new investment opportunities. Um, so part of that is you know following the market, following various sectors that are you know of interest um, and I want to keep an eye on, and also you know evaluating new investments um, that we've sourced, and then another large portion of my time is spent with our portfolio companies so there are companies that I monitor um, and I work with you know whether they're working on an acquisition whether they have strategic initiatives that they could use help with um, you know anything of that nature
1: great and uh, w- without you know go- going too much into the portfolio I, I-, I am curious because you've You've mentioned following the markets and you know examples of trends that you could follow. Are are there any trends that you're following now where you could sort of talk a little bit about how you develop that thesis and how you monitor it?
0: Definitely. Uh. So so one trend I've been spending a fair amount of time on is um e-commerce uh, and looking at you know how e-commerce. Has evolved over time and will evolve in the future. Um, so one, you know, one trend that has been quite interesting is seeing how e-commerce really accelerated following the pandemic, right? So we can see, you know, in the U.S. and also globally, there was a huge spike in e-commerce penetration um, following 2020 in terms of, you know, the percentage of retail um, that e-commerce occupies. So, you know, looking at that trend, we can see, even though growth has slowed down since, you know, 2020, 2021, it's still very reasonable to expect that e-commerce will continue to take share um, of total retail. Um, So, you know, within this area, there are a lot of interesting trends. Um, You know, Amazon is clearly one company that has, has grown and has very substantial share in the U.S. Um, but we're also seeing you know more specialized e-commerce players um, who've really focused on specific niches, whether that be a type of product they're selling or perhaps they're focusing more on a specific geography, uh, that have done very well. So you know that's one area that um, the team and I are tracking closely, you know seeing companies that are, are more specialized and are ultimately providing, um great customer value and for that reason they're able to perform very well even when you know major players like Amazon are out there
1: and as you're formulating that thesis how much of it is you know let's say your kind of original thinking in a market map that then you're looking for a company that meets what you're looking for versus observing the growth of companies in the market and then trying to kind of reverse engineer that work, and you're saying, okay, like why are these guys growing, and how durable is that growth for this specific company?
0: Hmm. You know, it's a mix of those two things. Um, it, you know, there are certain target characteristics that we're able to identify over time, just you know, based on companies we've seen that have really outperformed, and perhaps you know experiences that the whole team has had investing in companies where, you know, you thought they would outperform. And then something in your thesis was missing. You didn't, you didn't catch something. So I think that we're able to draw both on, you know, looking at market trends and, you know, our our own experiences investing as well as talking to others in the market um, to develop these theses. Um, But yeah, it's certainly a mix of, you know, Seeing what are the the key components we're looking for and seeking out companies with those um, characteristics, as well as you know we might source a deal or um, have an inbound deal that we realize does map quite closely to the characteristics we look for.
1: And and quickly for listeners, when you say like sourcing a deal versus an inbound, what what does that mean?
0: Yeah. um, So, you know, there are sometimes deals that will be sent to us by, you know, people in the networks of various team members. Um, So sometimes, you know, a deal is not quite as actively sourced. um, But there are other times where, you know, for example, a team member might see that one company has been performing very well and, you know, they either know an existing investor there or they know someone on the management team. Um, And so that's another way that you might proactively develop a relationship if you see that this is, you know, a company that's doing well and might ultimately be an interesting target investment.
1: Got it. So, so there's maybe some element of maybe, uh, you know, a CEO might reach out to a small handful of investors that they know invest in their space, but then sort of, yeah, the the reverse of that is nurturing a relationship over the span of, you know, a year or longer where, you know, you're maybe establishing some market leadership, building some like and trust where they're like, okay, like, you know, Kristen, she seems nice, she seems smart. Um, She could be someone I would want on my cap table.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, these things can happen in so many different ways. Um, One interesting one we've observed is that CEOs also talk to each other, right? Or members of management teams. So they'll often ask each other, you know, how was your experience with this investor and that investor? Um, And so that's another way you can really differentiate yourself if, if you are building strong partnerships with management teams. And you know you're supportive. Um, they enjoy having you on their board or working with you. Um, that can also lead to you know other investment opportunities of founders who are looking for that type of investor.
1: And as as a VP, what is does what your day to day look like? How much of your time do you spend on all of the various topics that you're that you're thinking about and working on?
0: Yeah, you know it, it varies a ton. <laughs> I guess that really depends on, you know, whether there's an active deal I'm working on, Um, if there is, a lot of my attention will go to that, Um, you know, company needs also vary. So, you know, I spend times working with my various portfolio companies, you know, based on what their projects are, if they're working on an initiative at a specific time. Um, and I also work on a fair amount of like business building activities. Um, you know, Prism is still quite a young fund. We have 12 people. Um, so, you know, in, in some ways we are a startup and, you know, I'm, it's all hands on deck to work on, you know, various initiatives around the team.
1: Yeah. Um, one, one topic, uh, we've, we've touched on in previous episodes of this show is kind of the underwriting process for a growth investment. Let's say you found, you know, a company and, you know, whether it's e-commerce or, you know, or niche e commerce or, you know, like some some sector that you find attractive, you get conviction around like, okay, I want to invest, you know, in this company and you know and they're they're generally interested in partnering with you. What what are sort of the steps to getting to a valuation? Like what what does that tend to look like?
0: um yeah, in terms of in terms of getting to evaluation specifically um, you know we're certainly looking at what are the the right public comparables to be looking at for this company um, sometimes you'll want to look at how those have trended over the long run, um, you know, the market has has had its ups and downs over the past few years. So, yes. you know, looking at the current valuation of comps is not always going to give you a full picture of what a company's really worth.
1: And are, are you like, when you're looking at public comps, what are the, like, are you, are you looking at kind of like an array of different things? Are you looking at revenue multiples primarily, or, you know, EBITDA multiples?
0: Um, you know, it'll be a mix of revenue and EBITDA depending on the profile of the company. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing we certainly look at as well is the growth. Um, you know, in companies we're looking at, they will often have a significantly higher rate of, you know, revenue, gross profit growth than a public comp. Um, Mm -hmm. so that's, that's certainly something we take into consideration as well.
1: And if you, yeah, so you're trying, you're like, in some ways. You know this this company that is growing so fast now. You 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 know that structurally, at some point in the future, the growth will slow. Um, what what are some ways you think about underwriting that, or like, because it, it sort of feels like you know whether their their growth tapers off in one year versus like three years makes you know a huge difference on the the outcome of the investment. So what are what are some even like qualitative ways you would think about breaking down that? that problem
0: yeah yeah that's a good question um you know we we aim for a very bottoms-up approach Mm -hmm. so that would mean that you know you're not just looking at what are the different revenue numbers that you're projecting over you know five or ten years you're looking at more specifically you know how many customers would this company have to add each year and, you know, how often would they need to order? How many customers could they lose? Factors like that. So that's certainly a good way to sanity check. You know, is this level of growth sustainable? Or, you know, what do we think can be the level of growth over the long term? Um, And part of that is also looking at like getting to know the management team. You see what their projection is and you can know from you know talking to them, talking to others whether this is a management team that has repeatedly hit their projections. Some of them are teams that have previously scaled companies, so you know having that context can also help you know you know is, is this growth projection realistic? Is this something that we you know need to assume will be significantly lower? Um, things like that. And yeah, that's a that's slightly more qualitative.
1: Yep, and then you know, for for younger folks who are trying to build this investment judgment, it sort of feels like when things go right, sometimes it's obvious, but when things go wrong, it's always for a different reason. Um, so I'm I'm curious, could you talk about? Um, you, you don't have to mention the specific company if you want, but a deal that maybe you looked at and passed on, or just um, that that you've learned with time something happened that was unexpected or surprised you and you and you know something you might have learned from from the benefit of that experience
0: you know sector trends are very important i i've seen instances where you know perhaps you you get excited about a certain company and you think that it can outperform when others in that sector haven't right yeah. And ultimately, you end up seeing that, you know, there were various macro trends that made it difficult to succeed. Um, One example can be regulation, right? If, you know, if it's a highly regulated sector, um, it's probably a fair assumption that there can be hurdles around that. And you need to do your diligence to become very confident that, you know, this company can succeed in spite of those hurdles. Um, So, yeah, macro is definitely a big one Um, and team is another, you know, you having a a management team you can have confidence in is very important. Um, So, yeah, from the for the type of investing we're doing, we really are investing both behind the idea and the existing team and, you know, trying to identify a team who we can see building and working with for the long term.
1: When I was an undergrad and I'd be like you know making like a you know mock presentation to like the student investment committee you know I'd have a team page because somebody told me I have to have a team page and I think every team page I ever made as a 21 year old was like great team because I you know it's like they seem smart and accomplished and you know and part of that is like these are public companies which is you know there's a little bit more uh, homogeneity at that stage than in the growth stage but one one question that I'm I'm you know keen to get your thoughts on is you know what's one level deeper between like what is a good management team and what is a not good team?
0: I think it can vary like between the sector, the type of company you're you're working with. Um, you know certainly looking at teams, you know within growth within um, the industries we're operating in they've been facing a ton of hurdles over the past, the past couple of years. Um, so identifying teams that were the, you know, the CEO or the founder um, is able to endure those cycles. Perhaps they've, they've succeeded and built a company before. Um, you can certainly, you know, you can learn a lot about founders by, you know, speaking to people who worked with them before, talking to investors. Um, and learning about how they've handled not only the you know the peaks and perhaps like the easier growth periods but also um, handle the challenges um, and I think also someone who's like receptive to to criticism and to really to working with investors um, I think you know certainly there's a ton that we learn from you know CEOs and members of management teams. Um, but having you know having that dynamic working relationship on a board or with investors is really important
1: yeah so if, if i'm if i'm parroting back what i think i'm hearing from you one one theme i've heard a lot is responding to change where you know change is going to happen you know the future won't look like the past and so you know if there is history that this team has encountered major obstacles or hurdles before and has navigated those well then you know that's maybe a positive check mark, and then there's some change that you do know is going to happen. Just like you're going to scale and you're going to grow, and the needs of the organization change as you grow. Working with investors and like that, you know, mindset maybe shifts as as they start to take capital from a firm like Prisms. Is, is that is that a fair way to? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, it? I is think
1: that's the, that's a great way to look at it, Kristen. I guess one last question before we hop off, which is I you know, and I ask this question of everybody, but if you could give a piece of advice to your younger self, um, you know, pre pre that first internship, um, you know, maybe you're interested in the space, but don't have a great sense of how to get started or what to do, you know, what's one thing that you would tell your, you know, your 19-year-old self?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like that question. Um, you know, I've, I've hit on this a bit, but I would reiterate that People are very important. Uh, I think, you know, especially when you're early on in your career, it's quite easy to to compare to others and to optimize on, you know, brand name, compensation, exit opportunities. Uh, And those are those are all very important things, but ultimately you're picking somewhere um, that you're going to be spending many hours each week and in investment banking or investing. Um, you're gonna be collaborating a lot. So you are gonna be working very closely with your team members. Um, so I, w- I would just suggest to anyone who's, you know, looking for their first role or second role, spend a lot of time considering like, what type of team you'll really thrive in. Um, and if, if you're taking interviews or considering opportunities, try to meet as many people as you can on that team. Um, if you're able, Talk to someone in your network who has worked there or knows someone there, and try to get an honest view. Um, and I think yeah, focusing on focusing on culture, focusing on somewhere um, you'll really thrive is super important.
1: Awesome. Kristen, thank you so much for joining. We really appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Craig.
1: That does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember to check out our website, breakingintofinancepodcast.com, where you can submit questions, join our Substack to stay up to date on new content releases and much, much more. We'll see you next time.